discovered more to say to you about being a disciple. No doubt, if you've looked at your notes, you've discovered that already. In fact, I, I have a, just a little bit more, some more things I want to say in the next couple of weeks. And some of you expressed some anxiety if we would ever get back and finish the plagues and move on into finishing Exodus. And we, we, I promise you, we will get there. But this is strongly on my heart, and I want to get through uh, these next several weeks and talk to you about a little bit more about discipling, and more particularly the next couple of weeks about evangelism. And uh, that's a very important subject that we need to address. So I want to kind of begin to do that this morning. If you look at Matthew chapter 28, again, I want us to read one more time the, uh, the great suggestion. It's here where Jesus suggests to his disciples that they might want to consider doing something and being something, right? It's all optional, isn't it? Is it optional? No, no. These are, these are absolute requirements. Remember, we have been rescued from the domain of darkness. That's what the Bible says. We've been transferred to the kingdom of God's Son whom he loves. We were slaves of sin. We were, we were, were, were captives in the kingdom of darkness. This is, this is what the Bible tells us. This is our condition. That we've been purchased with a price. We no longer belong to ourselves. That we belong to him. And as such, he has given us giftings and callings, paramount of which is the call to be disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. And if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, there are some implications that must be drawn from that. What is a follower of Jesus Christ? What what things describe a follower of Jesus Christ? And for the past several weeks, we've been looking at those things that that describe a, a true disciple, a true follower of Jesus and so these are not optional. These are, this is the life that he's called us to. This is the life that he's commanded us to live. A life that is ultimately honoring to him. A life that, that looks out and sees there are other people who he's calling, but he chooses to use us to speak into their life. The true disciple of Jesus is amongst all the other callings we've talked about, a true disciple of Jesus is called to go. Called to go. We see it again reflected in this great commission when Jesus says that all authority has been given to him. He is the Lord. He is sovereign. There's nothing outside of the pale of his control and his power and his sovereignty. He is the Lord. And as such, then he tells his disciples to go. Go and make disciples. Teaching them to obey all that he's commanded us. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And he says, you won't be alone. I will be with you. So don't feel like you're out there, you're on an island, you're all by yourself. Uh, God is with you. So much of the time, I think we, we forget that. So much of the time we leave God out of the equation. 
And it's even reflected in our prayers. We, we throw up a plaintive cry. We say, God, be with me, be with me, women, women. He said, he's already with me. Thank you that you're with me. Thank you that you're with me. Thank you that you're present. Thank you that you're here. See, that's operating from belief and faith, not unbelief. And so much of the time I think the church functions from unbelief. We'll say, I believe, but the, but the reality is, if, if you look at many lives of, of professing Christians, they're, they're operating from a functional unbelief. And so here again, we see this great commission. It's a commission. And it's a great commission. It is the great commission. This is the greatest call, the greatest commission any person could ever hope to receive and to engage. Would you agree? To be representatives of the Almighty God on this earth to other people who need to hear good news. And we get to share it. Think about that. Think of the import of that. Now sometimes, and the disciples had a problem with this, they did not always realize the fullness and what was required of them and so forth. And sometimes we... We may think, okay, um, I'm, I'm called into this, I'm, I'm called to do this. And maybe in the back of our minds there's this thought, what am I going to get out of it? What am I going to get out of this? Um, is, am I going to get paid for this? I mean, I hear that periodically. Am I, I going to get paid for doing this? Is there some, some return here? Or... We, we, we struggle with sometimes with the mentality of, well, you know, who's, who's going to be the greatest? Is there, is there a certain measure of recognition going to go along with this deal, this call, this commission? Jesus' call to discipleship is not primarily for the benefit of the disciple. It's not primarily for the benefit of the disciple. And again, his own disciples, those initial disciples, were slow to realize this. They, they were wondering. We see instances of this in the Gospel accounts. They were, in, they were wondering, what, what were they going to get out of this? Suffering, trials, difficulties. Did they anticipate that? No. Remember, they, they, were, they were wanting to, to sit on thrones. They were wanting to, 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 when Jesus established his kingdom, they wanted to be preeminent in the kingdom. What are they going to get out of this? Not only that, they were wondering who would be the greatest. And you recall Jesus had to rebuke them a number of times about that. No, he challenged those very attitudes. He challenged those disciples when he said to them in Matthew twenty twenty eight. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Just as. The implication is, what? Just as he has done it, his disciples are to follow the same path. It's not about me getting my goodies. It's not about me being recognized. It's not about me uh, getting rewarded here. It's not about me getting acknowledged. It's about following Jesus. The rewards are guaranteed, and they're guaranteed where? 
in heaven. The crowns that the Bible talks about, and, and whether or not they're literal crown, crowns, we don't know. It could be a metaphor for kinds of rewards and so forth. But we know that there are rewards for us in heaven. It's just kind of like we're deferring all of that because we understand that there's work to be done here. In Matthew chapter 9, just flip back to Matthew chapter 9 with me quickly, if you would, please. In verse 35, from verse 35 on through chapter 10, Jesus sends out the twelve. But notice what the impetus to that was. When Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. What a, what a, what a description there. And we, we look out on, the, on, the, on, the, on humanity, we look out on our, our culture, we look about our neighborhoods, we look out on people's lives, and there is harassment, it's spiritual harassment. The devil is ever-present through his minions, harassing and harassing, stirring up grief through the world system, confusion in people's lives. And people are, quite frankly, uh, without a shepherd, all we like sheep have what? Gone astray, the Bible says. They were harassed. They're helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Lord, send workers into the harvest, but don't send me. Send Pat, send Doreen, send Will, send Henry, send Vicki. Don't send me. Send Matt. Send, send the others, Lord. No, when we say, Lord, send workers into the harvest, the fact that we even pray that prayer, we ought to be the first ones praying that prayer to step up and say, Lord, let me be among the first to go. Here I am, Lord, send. Here I am, Lord, send. Not everybody's on board yet. (laughs) And you go clear through chapter 10. He tells them to go preach, go tell people the good news and heal them. Demonstrate the power of God's kingdom. Well, what if I pray and nothing happens? At least pray. Try. A little later on in Luke chapter 10, he sends the 70 out with the same instructions. And he tells them it's not going to be an easy thing. I'm sending you out as sheep among the wolves. It's not going to be an easy thing. It's not a picnic. You're going to be rejected, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be laughed at, you're going to be mocked, you're going to be put down, you're going to have people toilet paper your house, you're going to slash your tires, they're going to dig up your lawn, they're going to do... Who knows what they're going to do? But when you begin to expose yourself and you begin to reach out to people in earnest, 
you're going to get a lot of grief and a lot of rejection. You're going to be involved in a great spiritual battle, he told them. It's a spiritual battle. Our warfare is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. It's against the spiritual forces of darkness that are ruling and harassing people and keeping them slaves to darkness. As disciples, they were called and they were sent out. And in going out, they grew in their discipleship. If we are to indeed grow as disciples, as we are to grow in discipling, it's only going to happen as we go out and we do it. And a lot of times it's going to be trial and error. You say, well, I'm not sure what to do. Just go do something. Just as an example. You know when, when, they, when people call you on the phone and they want to, want you to take a survey? It, it happened to me. It happens to me all the time. It happened to me yesterday. Uh, uh, I was home and uh, I was watching the Dodger game. And I love the Dodgers. I love watching the Dodgers. It's one of my vices. And uh, I get a telephone call. And someone, some lady who wants me to take a survey... And I said, you know what? You're calling me right in the middle of the Dodger game. They're tied five to five. <laughs> she says, just, it'll just take a minute. And for some reason, I said, okay. And it went on interminably. So I answered all of her questions. And then I said, look, I've answered all of your questions. Are you happy? She said, yes. Thank you very much. I said, I've answered all of your questions. I want to ask you just one question. May I ask you one question? She says, I'm not allowed to answer questions. <laughs> I said, did I say that to you? No. I said, let me ask you one question. I said, if you were to die tonight, where would you go? Would you go to heaven or hell? I'm sorry, sir, I cannot answer that question. My boss is calling me. Goodbye. (laughs) I should have known better. And again, this is practicing and this is learning. I should have known better. When she picked up the phone, would you like to take a survey? I said, I'll take your survey only after you take my survey. (laughs) I'll answer all your questions, but you have to answer one question first. You see what I mean? As, as, we, as we start doing things, as we get out there, we, we, we back up. We say, how could I have done that better? It's only as we do the discipling, do the work, that we begin to actually grow as disciples. Am I making sense? Jesus made it clear, abundantly clear, that every disciple is both called to be his witness... And to be committed to the task of making disciples. Do you view yourself that way? I'm called to be his witness in this world. And I'm also called to be committed to the task of making disciples. Now that happens in my own life, in my own home. 
If you recall, Jesus told his disciples about the, the successive waves of disciple making. They, they would start in Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. So in our own home, metaphorically speaking, that's our Jerusalem. And then outside that, our, our neighborhood, our community is, is uh, uh, Judea and then Samaria, the outlying areas, and then ultimately to the ends of the earth. People we don't know, we'll, we'll meet along the way. This is, this is, this is what we are. This is what we do. This is what we're called to be committed to. In John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus put it this way, As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. When the Father said, Who will go? Jesus said, Here I am, send me. He didn't quibble and say, Well, you know, I don't know. I don't know. It's, you know, it's really comfortable here in heaven and being part of the Trinity, and, and I don't want to really give up my glory and go down there and mingle with them. And suffer their indignities. No, he said, here I am, send me, I'll go. As the Father has sent me, Jesus says, so I am sending you. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Beloved, if... if Christ's first call was to come. Isn't his first call come? Remember, he went to those, those first century there in the, in around, along the Sea of Galilee, and, and he said, come. If his first call is to come, his second is to what? Go. His second is to go. In Luke chapter 10, verse 3, simply stated... Go. He just says, go. In Mark chapter 16, verse 15, he puts it this way, go into all the world and preach the good news. Again, Matthew 28, 19, go and make disciples. Now, you would think, well, he's, he's, talking, to, he's talking to the professionals. No, he's not. Now, when we look at the early church, the early church was made up of common, everyday, ordinary folk. The Greek word to describe the ordinary people when they described Peter and John, when Luke describes Peter and John in Acts chapter um, 4, verse 13, the Greek word for ordinary is idiotes, <laughs> from which we derive the word idiot. Now, we attach a, a, a kind of a, a derogatory connotation to that word, but initially it just meant ordinary. It's ordinary. The idiots went. <laughs> All the idiots went. I like that, don't you? But the early church, the early church was, was frail it, with, with human failings, human weaknesses, human fears. But it was alive in the Spirit. It was alive in the Spirit. You see the early church, you, you read the accounts of the early church, and more particularly in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, you see this marvelous environment. 
They were live in the spirit. You see people, you can almost hear them all gossiping about the gospel. What are they talking about? The gospel, the good news, testimonies, what God's doing. They can hardly wait to get together and share. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Four critical dynamics that we always try to keep before us. The apostles' teaching, the word of God, that was preeminent. They devoted themselves. It's the word of God. It's the word of God. It's not the word of man. It's not vain human philosophies that we follow. It's the word of God, the apostles' teaching. Jesus said, if you, if, you, if you stay in my word, if you remain in my word, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's right here. Those two young women last night, the first thing I said to Sarah, I says, make sure they have a Bible. Make sure they have a Bible. And tell them to read the Bible. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. The Word of God is powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. The Holy Spirit will take that Word, make it alive to their hearts as only He can do. So they were committed. They were devoted to the apostle teaching. They were devoted to the fellowship. It wasn't a perfect fellowship, but they were devoted to it. They understood. They began to understand the importance of being part of a body, committed to that body, working within the context of that body. The breaking of bread, they ate together. They took communion together. They came to the Lord's table together. And they prayed together. All things that we try to keep in the forefront of our life here at Hope. And as a result, we're told in verse 43, everyone was filled with awe. Many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. You see this this family life. It wasn't a commune. They all had their possessions. But as we talked about last week, we, 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 we strive to live more simply and so that if we don't hold on to stuff, if people need stuff, and I have some resources that I can liquidate and help these brothers over here. That's what they did. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day, every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They were accustomed because they were all Jews first, and, and, and they, would, they were accustomed to meeting in the temple courts. But now they're meeting there every day. They can't get enough of hanging out together. And they broke bread in their homes. They ate together. They, broke, they had many church. They got together. It wasn't enough that they spent the day together. They, they met in homes together too at night. With glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The church was growing. God was moving. These people were excited. They were full of God's good news. Now God had already told them that, that they were to be his witnesses, and they were to go to the ends of the earth. They weren't just to settle there in Jerusalem and be comfortable, but he meant for them to disperse. He meant for them to go. And so if you turn over to Acts chapter 11, because they had settled down, as humans typically will do, it's comfortable, we like being together, we built relationships, we bonded, 
We don't want to break apart. Because that's such a human dynamic, and because there was a, a, a reticence to, to go, God does something. What does he do to the church in Jerusalem? Anybody know? He brings persecution. He brings persecution. Can he do that? Oh, absolutely. He brings persecution to disperse the people. Now, in Acts chapter 11, notice those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks, to the Gentiles as well, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. The Lord's hand was with them. It was his purpose that they go out. So who first carried the good news of Jesus to these outlying areas? Who first carried the good news of Jesus to Antioch and up the Phoenician coast? Who was that? It wasn't the professionals. It was the idiotes. It was the idiots. Think about that. Even the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 6 describes himself as, as one who is untrained in speech. Here's Paul. We think, wait a minute, I have, to, I have to get all this training, I have to get all this education, I'm not articulate, I'm not sure how to say Just go and open your mouth. Just start. Just speak. Can God use a donkey? If he can use a donkey, he can use an idiote. They went everywhere preaching Christ. And no opposition could stop them. They were compelled. It was the whole church, active in witness and bold in evangelism, that dramatically affected and changed the world of that day. It is the church. It's not our politicians. Although we pray for them as the Bible instructs us to. But it's the church. It's people filled with the life and the purpose and the witness of Jesus Christ who are going to impact a culture and the world. It is the church. In the church today, we need to think seriously how we can encourage the spirit of evangelism. That same spirit of evangelism that made such an incredible impact on those first few centuries of the church's history. We need to consider, as the writer to the Hebrews says, how we may incite one another on to love and good deeds. And more particularly, evangelism and the making of disciples. How can we overcome our natural reticence? Our natural tendency to be quiet, to hold back. Someone described Western Christians like the great northern rivers in winter, frozen at the mouth. The church has been called the frozen chosen. How can we overcome that reticence on the part of many believers? How can our congregation be released from the natural fear of men and resistance to change? 
How can our congregation be released from the natural fear of men and the resistance to change? That's a consideration for all of us, isn't it? How can good news, the good news of Jesus, spontaneously flow out of our lives, out of our fellowships, out of our um, ministries, out of our environment, into the, the, the homes, neighborhoods, workplaces, schools, where the people are. How can that happen? How can that be? I suggest to you that the vital necessity in all of this is one, personal witnessing leading to effective discipleship. We can pray all day long that people will come to Christ, but if we're not opening our mouth, we can pray all day long, Lord, make disciples. But if we're not individually involved in personal witnessing, the kind of witnessing that leads to effective discipleship, it's not going to happen. It is not going to happen. God has entrusted us with the Great Commission, has he not? We're the generation that's up to bat right now. We're the generation that's at the plate. We're investing in the next generation behind us, that people will come. But unless we're speaking into that generation, they're not going to come. Personal witnessing, sharing the gospel. Um, some of you are aware that uh, Pastor Steve has a, has a little project going on, and uh, his Evangi tales. And he's just making it a practice to speak to at least one person every day and to ask them simple questions, leading questions, to open a conversation like, if you were to die today, where would you go, heaven or hell? Or, do you believe in God? Or, would you like to hear some good news? Or any number of, of opening questions. And he's receiving various responses, and he's recording all these, putting them on his, on his uh, email uh, diary, if you will. Some of you have been the recipients of some of that. And people are responding. And people uh, in his district are now beginning to pick up his example. He's influencing people by example. He's stimulating them. And they too are beginning to speak out to other people and sending back to Steve reports. I've had the opportunity to read a number of them. But it's personal witnessing that does lead then to effective discipleship. If we can just sit down with somebody and show a genuine interest, a concern, and, and, and just communicate to them about the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and their need for salvation. And then take them and walk with them into, into a discipleship environment. It's the daily, unspectacular witness of Christians who are alive in Christ that makes all the difference. You don't have to be spectacular. You don't have to be super articulate. You don't have to be super gifted. You just have to care. You have to be willing. Say, Lord, use me. Use me. Wherever he's planted you. The church needs deeply committed people as teachers, as professionals, politicians, craftsmen, artists, people from all walks of life so that the church can be what Christ called it be, the salt of the earth and the light of this world. Salt. Salt. We have sat back and, and very often lament 
and complain as you watch the TV news or you read the newspaper. We say, how terrible. How terrible the violence, the immorality, the pornography. We say, in effect, the meat has gone bad. Yes, the meat has gone bad. Of course it's gone bad. Why? Because the salt never got in there in the first place. The salt is still in the salt shaker. It's got to get out of the salt shaker so that it can flavor the culture, so that it can act as a preservative, so that it can create thirst. Spirit-filled, spirit-moved people whom God would use, the idiotes, God just uses ordinary people. But you see, because the salt doesn't get in and flavor and preserve, others get in there. Others who have secular and humanistic and cultic worldviews, they've infiltrated strategic, and I mean strategic, sections of society with philosophies that are bankrupt, philosophies that cannot even hold a candle, cannot even begin to match the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. There are people believing the most astonishingly stupid things, things that, have, that, that don't even match reality. The classic one is evolution. And the kids from little on, all the way up through college, are taught this is the truth. This is how we got here. This is what it's all about. It's a godless, godless atheistic philosophy. And the church just sits by. And we're not permeating the culture. We're not being salt and light. And these philosophers, these worldly secularists, these godless people have been successful for one reason and one reason only. They've mobilized, they've trained, and they've dedicated themselves to willingly sacrifice everything to achieve their goal. They are utterly, absolutely committed to the proposition of their belief systems and to promulgate those everywhere they can. The meat has gone bad. And if we as Christians pray, we, we pray, God... God, your kingdom come, your will be done. We must also be willing to be the answer to our own prayers with all the imaginative boldness of those early disciples. I'm impressed with Steve, and I'm impressed with his imaginative boldness to go out there and to record these things and to actually talk to people and ask questions and be willing to look like an idiotes. We are called to go. We are called to be his witnesses. And we are called to be committed to making disciples. This is what the work of the church is all about. Let me give you some statistics. These are amazing. Now, we know that there's a Billy Graham crusade, his last one coming up, right? We love Billy Graham, and we thank God for him and his example and the, the impact he's had on on, on the, the last century, if you will, nearly. But let's just say uh, a Billy Graham crusade. If we could hold a Billy Graham crusade every day, 
every day for one year. And let's say that a Billy Graham crusade one day every year would result in 100,000 people a day becoming Christians. 100,000 people a day. How many people would have been converted at the end of one year? 36,500,000. Now two years, we hold crusades every day for a second year. 100,000 people a day get saved. How many people now do we have saved after two years? 72 million people. Isn't that astounding? 100,000 people a day. Now, there's roughly 6 billion people on our planet. At that rate, at 100,000 people a day, at that rate, it would take 164 years to reach all 6 billion people. 164 years. Now, let me propose another model. If we would evangelize and disciple one person, each one of us, one person for one year. In other words, you just lead one person to Jesus this year, and then you take that person and you teach them to obey everything God's commanded you for one year. At the end of that first year, how many people do we have? Two people. Now those two people, the second year... Each one go evangelize and lead another person to Christ and disciple that person for the second year. How many people now do we have after two years? Four. Now those four go and do the same thing the next year. How many people do we have? Sixteen. Do you know that if we would continue to do that, that it would only take 32 years to reach six billion people. Which is the more effective way of sharing the gospel? Discipleship, one-on-one. If you know anything about math, you understand critical mass and you understand exponential growth. At some point, it it starts out real slow, real slow, real slow, real slow, and then, then the curve starts turning up and then, boo, it just shoots straight up. You reach critical mass. You can't contain it. It just takes on a life of its own. God is moving and he uses that to evangelize unimaginable numbers of people. But it starts with what? It starts with one person, two people, three people. I'm not, I don't mean to diminish what evangelists and Billy Graham and those kinds of people are doing, but what I'm suggesting is we have relied on the professionals when, when he, Jesus has called all of us to the work of evangelism and making disciples. Am I making my point? Yes. Now let me give you four, four marks of an effective witness. How many people want their witness to be effective? You want to be an effective witness for Jesus, okay? Not all of you, but some of you do. Okay, good. <laughs> Hopefully more of you will come along sooner or later. Hopefully sooner than later. First of all, if you're going to be an effective witness, you must have a first-hand experience of Jesus Christ. You must have a first-hand experience of Jesus Christ. He's touched your life. He's real. It's not hearsay. 
We know that hearsay is not acceptable in a court of law. Hearsay is not acceptable in the court of the world's opinion. If I tell you something and you say, well, how do I know? You say, well, because, and I tell you, well, so-and-so told me. It's secondhand. It's hearsay. Well, you're less apt to be confident and believe what I'm saying. But if I tell you something, you say, how do you know? I said, because I was there. I saw it. I experienced it. It's real. I'm, con- I'm telling you. You're more apt to believe that. So when I tell you that I received Christ in my life, that he's changed my life, I was having a conversation with some guys from the, from the gym uh, Friday morning. Got done playing racquetball, and there were three or four of us gathered around. We were talking, and I always try to steer the conversation or, or at least get somebody to say something, and, oh, give me a door opener. So one of the guys I was talking to said, let me ask you a question. I said, all right. He says, have you always been religious? I said, no. I said, I too, like you, was a rank, stinking pagan. (laughs) It gave me great pleasure to say that, you might imagine. Now, these guys don't get offended, you know, they just, you just have to know how to say that. You can't dance around the issue. No, I said, I was a pagan just like you. I was lost, I was confused. I thought I was God's gift to the world. I thought, you know, I, I was indestructible. And so I began to share my testimony. I began to tell them what I was like before Christ, B.C. And then I shared the, 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 the circumstances of my conversion. And then I shared with what I, what I shared. I said, now you, you, you know me. You know me now. You didn't know me then. That you're, you're looking at my life and you're saying, Are you, have you always been religious? You, you do have a certain respect for me. It's because of who God has made me. So I'm talking to him about this life that I now have I didn't have before. Sharing my testimony. No one can deny your testimony. Because why? It's something that has happened to you. They may want to argue with you. They may not want to hear it, but they cannot deny it and you have to know you have to believe that God will use that you may not necessarily see any immediate fruit you may see a lot of backpedaling you may see well I don't know about that you know it's good for you but you know I'm gonna go over here they'll never forget you and they'll never forget your life is different that's what I tell them God changed me. God changed me. God changed me. I didn't change myself. I didn't read some self-help books and all of a sudden become a nicer person. God changed me. God changed me. The living God who created the universe came into my life and changed me at the very core of my being. And he gave me a whole new life. You see, so an effective witness must first have a a first-hand experience of Christ. People will listen only to what we have personally seen, heard, and experienced. Listen to Peter's testimony. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He says, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
Verse 17. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Now look at verse 18. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We were eyewitnesses. Do you think Peter was convinced? Do you think he had a compelling testimony? I'm telling you, I know who I was and I know who I am now. God and only God could have changed me. He brought me dragging and screaming into the kingdom. And I'm oh so glad. Your testimony. If you don't have a testimony, everybody, every Christian has a testimony. Composed of three parts. What you were like before, your conversion experience, and what you're like now. Sit down and write it out. Just sit down and write it out. Think it through. Speak it out. Share it with somebody. Practice it. Your testimony. Secondly, if you're going to be an effective witness, you must be able to express yourself verbally. You must be able to express yourself. Well, that lets me out because I, you know, I don't talk so good. Doesn't matter. Paul didn't talk so good either. That's what he says. So, well, I, I, I witness through, through how I live my life. Great. You should. I witness through how I do my job. You should. I witness through my attitude. You should. I witness through my own suffering. You should. But you should also open your mouth. You should also speak up. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. People want hope. Think about that for a second. People want hope. I didn't realize it until I got hope. And I always tell people, there's hope at Hope Chapel. Everybody lives with this vague sense of dis-ease just under the surface of their life. And they do everything to keep it from creeping up to the top. But there's this underlying vague anxiety about where am I going? What's this all about? What's going to happen? We're trying to hold things together. Hold things together. And people can't hold them together. And more and more people are freaking out because that vague sense of disease is surfacing in lots of lives. And our society and the demands of our society and the pressures are causing these things to surface. And people are freaking out. And they're medicating and medicating and medicating and medicating. It's a testimony that people want hope in their life. Something solid, something will never disappoint them, something they can hang everything on, and that only something is Jesus Christ. Because it's only Jesus that I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll be with you in a deep valley. I'll be with you when I take you out over your head in the waters of life. I'll be with you. People want hope. They want hope. And so we give answers. We, we tell them the reason we have this hope. We have to tell them. And certainly your life and how you live it could be an impetus to that, but at some point we have to articulate, we have to verbally say, I have hope. And when we tell them, Peter says we must do so with gentleness and respect. We don't beat them over the head with the Bible. 
We don't get into arguments. We don't fight. We don't come to blows over God. We do so with gentleness and respect. And with the integrity of our lives, demonstrating the truth of our words. Beloved, if you're going to talk the talk, you better be able to walk the walk. Third, an effective witness will have confidence in the power of God. If you're an effective witness, you will have confidence in the power of God. God is at work. You will rely on the power of the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified and the power of the Holy Spirit. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And Paul says, the gospel, the good news, is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. The good news of God, he says, is powerful. It's powerful to transform a life if someone believes. Now the first person has to believe is the one who's sharing the good news. I believe that when I talk to you about the gospel, that God is going to empower those words and is going to make a difference. And when you believe, I'm forever telling people, those of you who know me and those of you who have been in close in my life and you've talked to me about your issues and, and, and your faith and your walk, and I'll tell you again and again, and I'll, say, I'll use this phrase, I promise you, don't I? I promise you, I promise you, if you will do what I'm telling you to do, if you will put your faith in Jesus, if you will obey him, I promise you, how can I say that? Because I have confidence in the power of God. You walk after the Spirit. You obey God. You do what He says. By faith. You don't know. You just do it. Okay, Lord, you said I'm going to do this. You watch God work. You watch God work. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. The gospel is powerful. Good news, just temporal good news, just worldly good news, has inherent in it the power to lift you, lift your mood, lift your life, if you what? Believe it. If that's true, how much more God's good news, which is supernaturally powerful, when you believe it can lift you and save you and transform you. Does that make sense? How many people like a good sale? First hand, went up. First hand, I promise you. A good sale. Saturday mornings. I'm up early. I go to a council meeting. Saturday mornings. Julia, sometimes she's, oh, I'm tired this morning. I say, come on, get up, get up. Go to those garage sales. Go to those garage sales. <laughs> treasures. Get some treasures. See, there's good news. I tell her, there's a treasure out there. There's a treasure out there. And she can be slow and tired and not necessarily want to go, but then she perks up. Because she knows there's probably a treasure out there. And more than that, I'm encouraging her to go. <laughs> listen to this. Listen to Paul's words. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I love these verses. Verse 1 through 5. He says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Simple message. 
He says, I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling. Does that sound like us? Yeah. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. When I came to you, I was, tr- I was trusting in the power of God's Spirit, that he would empower these words, that he would make the difference, no matter how fumbling I was. You see, an effective witness knows that God can break through any defenses, any defenses, and change any heart. And this confidence is not brash. It's humble. It's sensitive. It's marked by much prayer. God, I know that you are powerful. I know that you can turn the heart of the king. The heart of the king is like channels of water in your hands. You can turn it whichever way you wish. You can turn the heart of my husband any day, or my wife, or my kids. God, I trust you and I believe that you're powerful. An effective witness knows that without God, he or she can do nothing, but that with God, all things are possible. You're in la-la land. Yes, I'm in la-la land. I'd rather be in la-la land trusting God than not. And fourth, an effective witness will have compassion for the spiritually lost. An effective witness will have compassion for those who are spiritually lost. He will care for them, she will care for them as individuals who matter deeply to God. You see, all of a sudden your perspective begins to change. Oh, I don't want, I don't want, eh. I got a man in our congregation, recruited him to, and this man is a powerful man, well-educated, well-positioned, uh, economically very, very well off. Came to our church. I got him working with homeless guys. We're trying to pick off the guys that are homeless one at a time and see their lives redeemed. And I've got him at the spearhead doing this. Now, it wasn't me. I was praying about it. I said, God, show me, show me, show me. Who, who in our church could I ask to do this? And God, just like that, gave me this, this man's name. And now he's fully engaged. It's exciting. We're seeing, we're seeing right now, we're, we're working with one man who's coming off the street some time ago, and now we've got him cleaned up. His life is on the path to redemption. But you see, you have to see, you have to have eyes for those who are spiritually harassed without a shepherd, the cast-offs, spiritually lost. Jesus said he, he looked out on the multitudes and, and he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. We will have those same eyes. If you're an effective witness, you'll have that. And as you grow, you grow as a disciple. That dynamic of compassion for the lost will also grow more and more in you. It will be more and more evident in your life. Why? Because as you grow as a disciple, you're growing more and more like whom? Jesus. And the more you become like Jesus, the more you you begin to see things the way he sees them, the more that your life begins to experience the compassion and and the vision for his kingdom like he has it. So what does it mean to be a witness to Christ? What does it mean to be a witness to Christ? Think about that. Go camp out on that for a little while. Talk about it with, with each other. 
Share your testimony. Practice your testimony with each other in mini church. Think about what opportunities you have to, to share in your neighborhood, in your school, your workplace. What are you doing? What difficulties do you have? What more could be done? These are all worthy questions to think about, to contemplate, and hopefully motivate us. Because as true disciples of Jesus, we are called to go. We are called to... We are called to... Turn to your neighbor. Turn to your neighbor and say, you know what? We're called to go. Let's, let's do it. Father, thank you. Thank you that you love us.